You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. The telescope that is years and years and years old now, and now we have a new one that's taken some of the same images and uh, I mean, people on the internet are, are just going wild over how clear the new technology is and the things that they can see, uh, the, the starlight, the planets, everything uh, that seems to just shine from a distance in a way that's much more clear now than it previously was. Uh, we have the opportunity, we live in a time where we don't have to just stand here at the ground and look up at the stars and the sky, although that is amazing as well. Uh, if you just walk out into the darkness and see the stars. But we live in a time where we can get a closer look or a wider look, or, or we can use a lens to capture more of the light as it comes in and see the beauty of the heavens, the handiwork of God. I wonder, I'm not the first one to wonder this. Uh, a man named Jamie Smith taught me to wonder this. But I wonder if there were, I'm not saying there are, but if there were aliens and they came down to Earth, or even if they put their spaceship, their flying saucer around, and they hovered around, you guys remember the old Marvin Martian, and they watched humanity from afar. Or even if they came down and they put on, like, you know, human skin and pretended to be one of us and just sort of walked around to learn what we did, I wonder what they would think about the things that we do. I wonder what they would think humanity thinks is the most important thing in the world. I wonder if they would walk down and they would see, or if they were flying in their flying saucer or their ship, and they would see the largest buildings that we have. Well, the largest in space seems to be stadiums. The largest maybe in height seems to be towers devoted to banks. I wonder if that would clue them in at all. And then when they would come into our homes and watch us on Tuesday night or Saturday night or Sunday morning, I wonder if they would see us sitting in front of a what used to be a box but is now more of a window, and they would see us watching people run around and hit each other. And they would say, oh, This is what humanity likes. And I wonder if they would maybe join us at the dinner table and they would hear the things that we talk about or maybe we're not even all eating together or none of us are talking. What they would see of our families, what they would see of us as an individual, and what they would think or realize, oh, this is what humanity cares about. I wonder if they would say, because we devote all of our time and all of our energy and all of our emotions and all of our conversations to one thing or another thing, if they would describe what we are doing as worship and what they would say humanity thinks is their God. Would it be entertainment? Because we have large movie theaters, and when some special event occurs, two people go out together to watch a movie together. 
would it be sports? Because the highest or one of the highest paid individuals in all of America, perhaps the world, is athletes. One of the largest groups that gets the most money, most income. I wonder if they would say that we worship money itself because our tall towers reach up to the sky and we go to places where we spend money. We give an offering to those who would give us goods in return. I wonder what they would say our God is. And I wonder what we would say of ourselves our God is. What is it that fills my conversation? What is it that fills my attention? What is it that I teach my children about or that we talk about or that I train them to love as they grow up? What is it that I am concerned with? What is it that I spend my money on? What is it that I put on a screen or keep on my hand as I'm preparing for bed at night? I wonder what these hypothetical aliens would think about you and me and all of humanity and what we think about God and how we worship. Our passage this morning begins in Acts chapter 19. We uh, did the first half or so of Acts chapter 19 last week, and we're in it again this week as we look at the city of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. And this idea of worship comes up rather quickly in our passage today. In fact, it it happened last week, and we talked about um, how the triune God acts inseparably, right? If you can see the Spirit working and the Son working and the Father working all together, that's where God is working. But if you don't see all three working in some way, probably something is missing. You may even be worshiping a different God. And here, the passage in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 21, 1921, picks up rather quickly with this idea of worship and what's going on in the community around them. If you remember, we're in Ephesus, a place in in, uh, the lower part of Asia, and in this location where Paul is and where where, where many others are, it's a bit like Washington, D.C., where there's lots of up-and-coming young starts who are, uh, who are professional, they're intelligent, they're, they're, uh, they're winsome in their speech, they're able to talk and persuade you of one thing or another thing, and they, they make a lot of money, they're here. It's a harbor city, so it's kind of like New York, where everything is being imported into the state, everything is being imported into the city, and it's, it's very wealthy, and people are, are, uh, are enjoying their wealth, and they're setting things up, and there's even a group of people called Asiarchs, and there's, uh, there's lots of these across all of Asia. If you can make out the name Asiarch, it's like a ruler, a sub-ruler of Asia. They answer to Rome, because Rome is the world power at this time. Rome has installed cities all across Asia and other parts of the world as well. And Rome has set up these rulers, and they're supposed to answer to Rome, answer to the emperor, answer to Caesar, and tell them the things that are going on. And you see, most places had maybe one of these individuals per year. It's like an elected official, a governor, a governor for a year. But Ephesus, Ephesus was so full. It was Washington, D.C. It was so full of these young, intelligent, winsome individuals that there are multiple, maybe three every year. Rome elects several of these 
individuals to become their rulers or the sub-rulers of this location. And all of them speak back to Caesar, and they tell Caesar what's going on. Ephesus, the third or fourth largest city in the world at this time, is booming with individuals, booming with people. But there's some things about Ephesus that might be helpful to know as we begin our, uh, as we begin our text this morning. If you remember at the end of our last uh, at the end of last week, we saw how some people thought that they could take the name of Jesus and use it almost as a magic talisman to, to exercise demons, to, to cast evil spirits away from individuals, to save people from their physical ailments. But it didn't work. The demons themselves exercised the humans who tried to use Jesus' name without knowing who Jesus was, and they ran out of the house naked. But Paul and all of those who followed after the way, they were able to do such incredible, miraculous, even we might say magical things. Things that aren't supposed to happen. Things that don't occur in this life, at least as we know it. And Paul was able to, and and the disciples who were around him, were able to cast out these demons. In fact, God was working so fervently in this time and in this era, in this area, that the aprons and the handkerchiefs that Paul had used when he was doing leather work were able to cast out these demons. You know what? People in Ephesus, all these intelligent individuals, they saw what was... Paul and the disciples are able to cast out demons that nobody else can. They start to talk to their friends, their fellow workmen. At the workplace, they start to tell about what Paul has done and what what the followers of the way are able to do, ultimately what Jesus does through them. And so everybody who hears and believes and thinks, wow, that really is miraculous. That really is something that is amazing. Artemis, the the god that we worship, is supposed to be able to cast out demons. There's that secret name down there, and you can use it in part of your spell, and you can use it to cast out demons. They couldn't do that. But Paul, through the name of Jesus, not Artemis, was able to cast out these demons. And so all of these individuals in the workplace who talk together and, and start to believe together, maybe this really did happen. Maybe there is really a god who is more powerful than all the spirits that we know. They bring together... Their magic tomes, because they had spell books. They bring together their amulets, which probably had a secret word on it, maybe a little locket that they would open up and it would have a secret name that you would be able to say in order to exercise a demon or, or to, 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 get something, uh, to get something to happen in your favor, a lucky rabbit's foot, something that they might rub in a situation where they wanted good luck. And they took all of these books, these scrolls, really. They took all of these amulets, these lucky charms that they thought and had experienced that something actually happens when you use them. And they brought them all to the disciples. And the amount of it was pretty significant. Let me make sure I'm getting this number right. And the number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. Oh, wait. Also, many of the believers... Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices... And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 
pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Using the scrolls as, uh, as, the, as the kindling for the fire, they burned up these amulets and all of the books that were, that were written in with all of these spells and everything that they thought was needed for making the city and safe and secure, for protecting their family. And the amount of it was over 50,000 pieces of silver. You know, if aliens had come down to Ephesus in this time, I think it would have been pretty obvious what they worshipped, who they worshipped. Because as they would have descended in their spaceship, they would have seen a large temple. It was about 70 yards wide, nearly the size of a football field. And it was about two and a half, almost three football fields long. And there were pillars, 127 of them, each of them six feet in diameter. And they stretched up 60 feet to the sky, and all of these pillars were marvelous, beautiful. And in this large space, a football field by three football fields, there was a statue. The statue looked a little strange, at least it would to us. It was carved out of wood, but it was painted over, and it was the figure of a woman. And on it, she has a crown with some goats on top. Kind of funny, kind of strange. And on her chest, she has uh, many orbs, which people don't really know what they were, because they might be what you think they are, or they might be some other sense in which she has control over the earth, the world. They may be pomegranates or some sort of fruit to show that she cares for life and living. Aliens would have had no difficulty coming down and knowing who they worship, because it was said in bright or in great letters, Artemis of the Ephesians, as she was set up in this massive monument, the largest thing that you could see in Ephesus, the Artemisium. There was just down the road from this big location, from this big temple, a theater, an amphitheater that could house thousands of individuals. And they would see people come down to this theater, and they would talk business and politics. But you know one thing? They would always talk about Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It would have been obvious who the city worshipped. It was Artemis. She was a mighty huntress. She would help women through childbirth so that they wouldn't have as much pain. She would control the natural world. She would rule over the moon and cause it to rise, influencing the tide for the boats, influencing the night of the hunt so that you could get the stag, so that you could bring home a prize, you could enjoy the fruits of your labor. Artemis of the Ephesians was a mighty huntress, forever a virgin who was able to care for the women who were in pain. She brought life to Ephesus. But when Paul and his followers, the disciples, the followers of the way come along and they proclaim, in the name of Jesus, get out. Well, suddenly things start to happen. Suddenly, an alien, if they got out of their spaceship and were walking around, they wouldn't know anymore 
who they worshipped. Because you saw a crowd, a mass of people who were bringing all of their belongings. They were selling everything that they had that was devoted to Artemis. And they were burning it up in a pyre, worshiping God and saying, I have turned away from my sin and I worship the true God now instead. And people might start to be a little confused. 50,000 silver pieces, that's quite a lot. You could buy, you could buy a temple of your own with that. You could set up a place for you and all of your friends, for your family. You could take care of the hunger in the city. You could make sure that everybody who was poor and was begging on the street had a home. But they burned everything because they knew the power of the name of Jesus. So, after this event, Paul decides it's time for him to leave. Perhaps things are starting to rumble a little too much. Paul has uh, achieved the patronage, the, uh, the, the benefit of a relationship with some of these powerful Asiarchs who rule over the city, and it may be that he's stirred up a little bit too much trouble. People are starting to talk about him behind his back, because those who believe, believe wholeheartedly, but those who do not, they become to, they start to wonder, what about our, what about our God? What about the things that we're doing? And so, Paul sets in his mind to depart. Starting in verse 21, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Paul is ready to go on his journey. So uh, in the last few days before he leaves, he sends his two right-hand men. Priscilla and Aquila are, are still going to be here probably in Ephesus, but Timothy and Erastus, they're going to go forward. They're going to prepare the way. They're going to say, hey, by the way, Paul is coming, and he's going to talk to you about this guy named Jesus. So he sends Timothy and Erastus on the way, and Paul continues to prepare himself to leave. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, 
For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. It reminds me a bit of the Tower of Babel. You remember that story, the Tower of Babel, and in Genesis 10 and 11? It's after God has uh, cleansed the world of sin through a flood, and he's set up a new family through Noah and his children. And these children of Noah, they, they continue to live and to build things and to make things and to practice music and to practice craftsmanship and to hunt and to farm. And they're so successful in everything that they do that as they have generations and generations and generations who follow them, they all decide, you know, we're pretty good at this whole humanity thing. We should build a place for us together. Maybe we can even reach the heavens. You know, our forefathers told us that God sent down rain from heaven. That must be where he's at. You know, our four forefathers, Adam and Eve, they were sent out of the garden. Perhaps we can sort of get back to this heavenly paradise. Let's just build a tower. Hey, you're good at craftsmanship. You're good at bricklaying. You're good at adorning with gold. Why don't we all get together and build this tower? So they do. Step by step by step, they start building this massive ziggurat, a tower, a, a pyramid of sorts, to reach to the heavens. And God up in the sky where they're trying to get, says, what's that they're doing down there? Here, let me go and take a look. So God steps down out of heaven to look at what they're doing at the tower. And he says, look, together there is nothing you can accomplish. There's nothing you cannot accomplish. Together you will reap your own demise. Your doom is upon your head. So he scatters them, changes their language so that there's confusion everywhere. They can't understand one another. One of them speaking Swahili and the other one speaking English and the other one speaking Portuguese and the other one speaking Japanese and somebody accidentally says something that's, that's not in their language, rude, but you know, when the other guy hears it, it sounds like a pretty intense accusation. So they decide it's best just to split up, to disperse, to not worry about this tower thing anymore. Well, that tower remains for some time, for a few hundred years, 
when Babylon comes along and, and the, the rulers of Babylon decide they're going to continue to build the tower. They might need to dress it up a little bit. Some, some uh, squatters have lived in there. They'll need to remove them. They'll need to tear some walls down. But Babylon, they can repair the tower. And so they do, in part. They start building up the tower again. Nebuchadnezzar does it. Cyrus the Great, the Persian who follows Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't really spend much time at home. He's off too busy making a name for himself with war, so he just sort of lets the, lets the tower rot. He takes down the stairs so that nobody can, can get in, but he sort of ruins the tower. And then the next one, Alexander the Great, he comes into power, and he's going to make the tower something new again, but he realizes there's too much rot in it. When they took the stairs down, water came in and flooded everything out. They've got to clean the whole thing. They're, let's just raise the tower to the ground so that we can rebuild it. Nice. So Alexander the Great raises the tower to the ground, but he dies before he can see it lifted up again. And so the foundation, you can still see it today if you go on Google Earth or if you travel over there, you can still see the foundation of the alleged Tower of Babel. God had to come down to see it. And it reminds me a little bit of this story, because if you had gone to Babel, there would have been no question who they were worshiping. What does your God look like? For them, for them it was themselves. Good at craftsmanship, good at artistry, good at building. They can all work together in a community to build themselves up to a tower. For Ephesus, it's pretty obvious. It's this large, massive thing, and the theater dedicated to her name, and the statue that's inside, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. It would have been obvious who they worship. But what does your God look like? What does your God look like? Does it look like a woman with 26 orbs on her chest? Does it look like something else? Something not quite so ancient? Something a little closer to your heart? Does it look like the face of your child when they're resting? Or does it look like the colors of your favorite team? Or does it look like your own satisfaction? Everybody is there to serve you. But in our story, a riot breaks out. About that time, there was, arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who brought a bunch of work to not only the silver makers who would adorn small little statuettes of Artemis and sell them to people, and there were wood carvers who would carve the statue first so that it could uh, be the right size for the home. There were, in, in some places even today, there are houses, and when the house is built, when the foundation is laid, there's an entire wall with a, with a crevice cut out of it so that you can put your, your home idols in the location in that little window. There were silversmiths, and there were all of those who were similarly trained, who were doing other things and preparing miniature idols for, for all these people to worship Artemis of the Ephesians. And so he gathers them all together, and he says, look, 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 
You've seen what Paul is doing. You've heard what he's done. You hear people calling about Jesus, saying the name, following the way. Paul has gone to Colossae. He's gone to a city nearby, and he's told them all about Jesus. And he's gone to other places as well. He's gone to Laodicea, the place with all the baths, you know, the place where it's warm water all the time and they don't have hot or cold. He's gone there and he's told them all about Jesus. All of Asia, they used to look at us, at the Ephesians, and they used to come and they used to travel here and they used to purchase our our money, our idols, our silver, and they used to take it home to worship Artemis of the Ephesians, the great huntress who protects women in childbirth. But now they're all talking about Jesus. And everybody around him hears what he's saying and they become enraged. That's our, that's our welfare. That's, that's our livelihood. If Paul continues to preach Jesus, we won't be able to make any money. We won't be able to protect our family. We won't be able to provide. We won't be able to do anything. And everybody knows that the gods need our worship. Otherwise, first of all, they get angry and they destroy us. Remember what happened to Sparta? Remember what happened with the Trojan War and everything there? The gods will come down and they'll destroy us. And then, after they destroy us, the gods will continue to weaken in power and eventually Artemis is going to die. And then who's going to tell the moon to rise? Then who's going to protect women? Women are going to die in childbirth. It's painful enough already. And so all these people all together are furious at what Paul is doing, that he's undermining the entire operation. He's flipping it on its head. So they begin to chant. Some of them grab their tools. Maybe they make a sign. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And all together, chanting together loud with picket signs, walking down the main road, they gather crowds along with them who are all chanting the same thing, great as Artemis. Some of them don't even know why they're there. They just know Artemis is great. They might as well join in. There's nothing they disagree with. And so they pick up all of these travelers, these stragglers who confuse, why are we chanting great as Artemis? Yeah, we know it's true. We have to say it every time we go into the theater, but what is the point here? And they're talking to one another. All of them are in confusion. And they get into the theater and they say, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And so a guy, the Jews push forward Alexander, because some of the Jews believed as well, and Alexander, maybe he can give a good defense. Paul wanted to talk. He tried to go in there to the theater. Oh, they're all gathered together? Great, this is the perfect time to share the gospel. I'll tell as many people as I can, and maybe some of them will believe. And his, his friends, the ones who are, who are responsible for sponsoring, who, who, who give him, who give him the, the ability to, to be in the city, they get something out of it too, but they allow him to be in the city. They say, no, Paul, you can't go in there. They know what's going to happen. They know a riot is going to break out. And they know that in the theater with these many thousands of people, there is no promise of protection and safety. And so they say, Paul, you can't go in there. But instead, some of the disciples, they push forward a guy named Alexander. Hey, you go do it. You talk to them. You tell them about Jesus or, or at least explain why, why they shouldn't be chanting this thing. So... Alexander walks up to the stage at the front of the amphitheater, and he steps up, and everybody sees, oh, that's a Jew. We know who he is. We've seen that guy before. He's just going to raise our temple to the ground. And so they begin chanting even louder, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, they chant. I mean, I know we have our favorite football teams. Can you imagine the entire game 
chanting the same thing for two hours. Probably in this time, some of Paul's friends, the Asiarchs, go up and they, they talk to the, the clerk, the one who's responsible for the theater. They say, hey, this is kind of what's going on. These people are angry because they think that he's tearing down Artemis of the Ephesians uh, and that he's, he's sort of upending everything. The economy is switching. Everything's turning around on its head. So the town clerk goes up there, pushes Alexander to the side, and says, people of Ephesus, they finally quiet down and they listen to him. People of Ephesus, now look. We all know how great Artemis is. Everybody nods their head. Perhaps they begin the chant again. He has to quiet them down one more time. We all know how great Artemis is. We have her temple. Rome recognizes us as the the bastion of Artemis worship. Look, we even protect the, the altar, the stone that fell from the sky. There were stones that had fallen from the sky, possibly meteorites, probably more likely volcanic rock that had sort of shot out and landed on the ground. One for Zeus, for example, existed, and they would set it up on a pedestal, and they would worship it as a gift from from Zeus. (laughs) Zeus. It showed how great Zeus was that he could send down this rock from the sky. But it was was more, nothing like that has been found for Artemis. Everything there is carved of wood. It's almost as if they're, they're trying to make a claim to greatness. It was not just them, it was everybody. Well, our, our, our statue, that one fell from the sky. It's that great. God themselves gave it to us. She sent it down, and, and I know it looks like, wow, that's, she's kind of weird looking. But that's okay, right? It fell from the sky. It's from her. This is God's word to us. And so they would, the, the, temp, the town clerk, everybody knows how great Artemis is. We have her temple. We're listed as the Artemisium. We're the place where everybody knows Artemis is the ruler. And all of Asia worships Artemis. All of Asia knows who she is. There is no danger here. Nothing is going to happen. Paul and his disciples, they've not even blasphemed our goddess by name, which is possible. Never by name. Perhaps because they don't really deserve a name. They're not doing anything to upset the economy here. Everything is all good. You can imagine, Ale- or not Alexander, but uh, Demetrius and all of his silversmiths and everybody that's, that's in the theater upset at this. So the town clerk says, look, we've already been in trouble for riots twice the past five years. You can't start another one right now. We don't have any excuse for this. The proconsul, he's just over there, a stone's throw away a mile from here. He could probably hear you chanting. He's going to ask me later today what was happening at the theater, and I'm going to have to give him an explanation. What am I supposed to tell him? There's no reason for us to be here. If you want to charge Paul, Demetrius, go take him to the court. Go, go have the governor settle it. The proconsul will take control of it. But there's no reason for that to happen here. If you want to come back here in the theater, it has to be during a normal, a regular assembly. It can't be sort of this 
this riot gathering together with picket signs and just chanting all throughout the city. Look, some of these people don't even know why they're here. They're confused. And so he dismisses them. And everybody goes to their home, out to the market. Everybody laying in bed that night thinking, man, that was something wild. I was just part of something really big, and I still don't really know what it was about. Other people are going into the marketplace and talking to one another. Hey, were you at that? Yeah, were you at that? Yeah, I was there. Do you know what it was about? Yeah, it was about Artemis. Oh, I heard it was about some guy named Art. There's all sorts of confusion, and everybody goes their own way, and oddly enough, the story sort of just ends. It fizzles out. Nothing more happens. Paul doesn't get killed. He continues to prepare for his departure. There's not some sort of great persecution that breaks out here. Alexander seems to be perfectly fine. The temple of Artemis still stands. The statue is in there. It's just over. But there's one thing that we know in the book of Acts, and is that the word of the Lord continues. All of these people, after their confusion, after their great monument, after they're all brought together, it's almost as if God in heaven says, I already came down there. This time I didn't do it in judgment. This time I didn't scatter you by the languages. In fact, through my Holy Spirit, I brought back, I reversed what happened at Babel. I gave you the languages to talk to one another, to share the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. And what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus, he came down from the sky. He came down and he actually lived among us. And when you ask, what does my God look like, you could point to him. He looks like that. And why does he look like that? Why does he look like a man, a Middle Eastern man with a short beard or maybe even a long beard and some short groomed hair? And why does he wear that dress thing? Well, because God became man. And why did God become man? Because when God created it, He already told us what he looked like. In the image of God, I will create them. Male and female. For God made man in his own image. And you and I and everybody else, we try to find God's out there and up there. We try to look for things that we can worship. We try to build up idols and and temples and make things wonderful. And maybe it'll be generations from now, maybe my kid's kid's kid is going to be the first astronaut to Mars. Maybe my kid's kid's kid is going to be, I have everything figured out, a mansion on the beach. Or maybe your gods, maybe your your goals are a little more short-sighted. I just want a fishing boat and I want to fish all day and that's all I want. 
and everything that I do serves toward that end. And you and I, we just keep looking outward and upward, trying to find God somewhere. And God says, I already came down there. And what's more, I showed you what I was like from the beginning. Look at your brother and look at your sister. Look at your mother and look at your father. The image of God is already there with you. You don't need to pick up the idol and parade it through the street and install it on its altar so that everybody can see how wonderful it is. Just look next door. You got a neighbor there, and he shows you what I look like. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Together, as a community, he didn't tell us to go build a big building somewhere. He said, that temple, I'm tearing it down in three days. What's more, I'm putting my spirit in you, and you will be the temple of God. You don't need 127 pillars, 60 feet tall and six feet wide. You just need each other worshiping God because the word of the Lord never ceases. What does your God look like? He looks like a man. And the man has sent his spirit, his breath, to live in each one of us so that we don't need to travel to Ephesus. But together we honor the name of the Lord. Great is the name of Jesus. The Tower of Babel has fallen. The Temple of Artemis, a half pillar remains temple of the Lord, the living temple with living stones, it will continue to honor and worship God into eternity. So what does your God look like? Cast away all false idols, all things that grab your heart. And worship the true God. Worship the one who reveals himself in the person of Jesus. And if you don't, I can't tell you that you're going to find this one catastrophic event that ends your life and makes you realize I should have done something different. I should have worshipped the true God. But like the crowd in Ephesus, one day you may just fizzle out, dispersed, And nobody will even notice. Let's pray. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.